0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books in Sociology of the Life course on the New Books Network. Today we have with us Jessie Strive, who is an assistant professor of sociology at Duke. And her new book that we're going to talk about today is "Privilege Lost, Who Leaves the Upper Middle Class and How They Fall, out from Oxford since April 2020. Jessie, welcome thank you for having me so your work has focused on social class for quite some time Um, it looked like you've done some work on social class reproduction in children as young as four years old and your last book was on social class mismatches in marriage um which came out from oxford in 2015 called the power of the past um Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to focus on social class?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's from
0: moving around
1: a few times as a child. So I grew up in Shaker Heights, Ohio, which is a wealthy suburb of Cleveland. And then right before I was starting seventh grade, we moved to rural Ohio, and it was a more working class town um, with a university, though, so some class mixture And then i went to college at trinity college which i didn't know at the time but the numbers have come out since then and it has one of the highest shares of people in the one percent in the entire country so i think about 40 percent of students there are in the top one percent of the income distribution and so i moved from you know these different uh places in terms of the class distribution of the communities and really noticed how class mapped onto culture in a lot of ways so people had different expectations for their future. They had different ideas of what was normal in their lives. They had different ideas sometimes about like what a good friend is. And so I just got really curious about how the amount of money you have or the amount of education that you have translates into these more or these less tangible things, these things that we, at the time, I didn't think related to class, but were kind of coming to see that there seemed to be this package of class and culture are going together and I got really curious
0: about that. Those are some great observations because I think social class is often either just simply equated with financial uh, status or is in some ways a relatively abstract concept that Americans don't necessarily talk about. so I'm, I'm kind of curious to dig in a little bit and, and have you speak about how you define or talk about social class in your latest book.
1: Mm-hmm. So my book focuses on people who were born into the upper middle class. And I define upper middle class by people who have at least one parent who grew up with a college-educated professional parent. Um, so of course, that's not the only way we could define class. We could also think about income or wealth, but a lot of times people are less sure about their income. it, um, It changes more over time and everybody can report pretty accurately on their parents' levels of education and occupation. So they're a bit more reliable measures. And so I use education and occupation to define being in the upper middle class.
0: Yeah. And my impression also is from the book that you talk about it in terms of identity and resources.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I look at kids who were born into the upper middle class, meaning they have at least one parent who grew up, um, who one parent who is a professional and who has a college degree. Um, But that doesn't mean that all kids who have one college educated professional parent grow up with the same resources or the same identity. And so what I do find is that the resources you grow up with and the identity you have relates to your chances of staying in the upper middle class as an adult.
0: That's really interesting. Right, let's talk a little bit about the methodology behind your book um, before we kind of jump into um, the content. So the, you in, in privilege Lost, you looked at stories from just over 100 uh, sounded like mostly white, upper-middle-class individuals uh, who were born between 1984 and 1990. And you selected your participants from, they were selected from a national survey and interviewed over a span of 10 years. That's a long study. Uh, how did you come to this study design?
1: Yeah, well, to study downward downward mobility, I really wanted to study people over a long time period. And I was hoping to do so as they were making the transition to adulthood, because this is a time where people are making choices about school and college and work, as well as marriage. And so these decisions really can shape our trajectories over our life course. And so looking at that time period seemed really important. Um, and I didn't want to do a retrospective study where we asked people, like, why do you think you were down- downwardly mobile? Because people might not know. And so following them over time as their transition was happening seemed like a really important way to go about studying downward mobility.
0: And so the a- age span that you chose had to do with the the part of life that they were in, sort of what life course decisions they were facing at that point in time.
1: That's right. So they're in this moment where they're deciding whether or not to go to college, which of course has a big impact on their mobility trajectory. They're deciding what kind of jobs to take. Do they want a professional job? Do they not? Are are they going to try for it? Are they not? And they're starting to think about marriage. Do they want to get married? Do they not want to get married? What type of person do they want to marry? At what age do they want to marry? So they're making these really important life decisions as they're transitioning to adulthood.
0: It really made me think a little bit about Charles Tilley's work, um, "Durable Inequality," where he says that it's important to not only figure out what causes inequality, inequality, but to figure out the how, why, and with what consequences do lasting systematic inequalities in life chances distinguished members of different socially defined categories or persons, and how do those inequalities form and change and disappear? And I feel like you were trying in some way to capture some of those elements of it, Um, that idea of a durable inequality and sort of um, how those uh, stretch out over time. And so the way you approached that was to uh, form archetypes in your book and talk about these identities and resources um, in terms of archetypal groups. So um, that really seems to form the structure of your book. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of how you came to the archetypes you came to and um, talk a little bit about those. So um, how how did you uh, decide to follow... um, uh, structure your data in archetypes.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I started out studying this question of who is downwardly mobile from a really inductive perspective. So I didn't have much idea about why some upper middle class kids would be downwardly mobile and others would not. And so I, you know, got this data and I, and it does follow um, kids from when they're about 13 years old to when they're about 28 years old. And so, and it interviews them repeatedly through that time period. So there are multiple interviews with each person. And so I just started reading all the transcripts and trying to figure out what is it that's going on? Why would some kids be downwardly mobile and others wouldn't, given that they all grew up in the same class? And it was from reading those interviews over and over and over again that you start to see patterns, that they're some types of kids who seem to be describing themselves in the same ways, they seem to have similar sorts of experiences, and those identities and experiences seem to map on to their mobility trajectories. Um, So to give you an example, one of the first things that stood out to me were the rebels. So these are kids who, mostly boys, who kind of define themselves by going against the institutions that they were in. So they were the kids who broke all the rules at school who they usually went to college, but really distanced themselves from the academic part of college. And again, were more interested in rule breaking. Um, and then they often didn't want to have a professional job. A professional job seemed like somebody having a boss that was gonna tell you what to do all the time. And they wanted to break rules. They didn't wanna follow rules. So this idea of, of having a boss was just really off putting to them. And they often then didn't apply to professional jobs and were down mobile. So it started, um, these patterns kind of just came out of the data of seeing what are the patterns and how people express who they are, what they want and how that relates to their mobility patterns.
0: Yeah, that is very interesting. And I bet, I mean, I think that the archetypes really make the book relatable because I think we can all kind of see, uh, it, it makes something that's abstract connected to like, Oh, I know somebody who's <laughs> like that. Um, now let's talk about some of the other archetypes as well. So you said the re- the rebel archetype, but did you find there were really, it, it sounded like there were very, pretty large differences in terms of what trajectories these archetypes put people on. So, um, you started by talking about the professionals, And um, let's talk about the professionals for a minute.
1: Sure. So I want to point out that not only do the archetypes shape, and the archetypes being these identities, do they shape what mobility trajectories the kids end up on, but they also reflect the resources they were raised with. So the professionals are a group who were raised with the most resources. Their parents tended to have a lot of money, even for upper middle class kids, and their parents tended to be really hands on, So their parents were the type of parents we usually associate with the upper middle class, the ones who are kind of constantly helping their kids improve with their schoolwork and learn academic skills and help them navigate how to understand, like how to talk with their teachers, what's a good school, what's a good college, how to be a good student. And so they had all of these resources, which allowed them to do really well in school. And they really jumped in and embraced that. And so the professionals are this group who had the resources to succeed in school and college and work and then acted very confidently in those ways and worked hard to get more of those resources that they were given. So they were the students who tried really hard in school, who were really invested in getting straight A's, who did all of their homework and really loved doing their homework um, and who would research what's a good college, what's a good graduate school, how do I meet the requirements And they just, uh, they saw themselves as future workers and future professionals and people who would devote themselves to their careers, right? Their careers weren't something they were doing to be able to fund the rest of their lives. They were the thing that was gonna be one of the most central parts of their lives. And so they imagined themselves in these roles and they kind of enacted their professional identity even when they were young. So they saw professionals as people who were devoted to their careers so when they were younger they really devoted them to school themselves to school they saw themselves as people who were going to make a lot of money and so when they were young they talked about you know things that money would buy and how money was important to a good life and they saw themselves as people who were going to put off marriage until they had careers because careers were so central and they wanted to marry somebody whose career was central to them as well and so they were really invested in getting these upper middle class professional jobs, and in doing so and reproducing their class position.
0: It's so interesting as you talk about this to think about just that interplay of what we feel like the opportunities people make for themselves versus those that seem structured in. And it's always a tricky thing to try to talk about these things without making it seem overly deterministic, but also not like every option is available. So I, I don't know if that's a clear enough question, but I'm just kind of curious how you struck a balance between these things in, in talking about your, your participants. Yeah,
1: I agree. That's usually a challenge. And so the way I did it was to describe the main patterns. So for example, the professionals usually did come from families that gave them a lot of resources, even among upper middle class families. And they usually did reproduce their class position. But I also talked about the exceptions. So there are people in the study, like a woman I call Vanna, who she grew up on the very lower end of the upper middle class. So her mom was a teacher. She was raised by a single mother. Her dad lived in a different state and was a mechanic. Um, so. For the upper middle class, it's almost like she was there on a technicality rather than in real life, because she did have one college educated professional parent. But she really identified as a professional, despite not having the resources that the kids who usually identified as professionals did. And so because she had that identity, she tried so hard in school. And she really kind of associated her self-worth with her academic ability. And she then used all the resources available to her to figure out where to go to college and what to do when she was there. And then she went to the career center often, and they helped her get internships. And she used those internships to help her get a good job. And she studied, studied, studied throughout. And so she ends up with a job she's really happy with that's a professional job, and she's got her college degree. And so looking at the variation and seeing, like, it's not only people who grew up with a ton of resources that have these professional identities and reproduce their class, I think helps us think about it as not a completely deterministic thing. There are exceptions um, and we can look at them as well.
0: I think it's a great approach. I mean, it's a unique perspective and it really offers some interesting reflection on this topic of, of class. I want to make sure we talk about the other um, archetypal identities that you introduce in the book. So um, the two that seem to run hand in hand are the stay-at-home mother and the family man.
1: Yeah, so these are people who often grow up with fewer resources than we associate with people who grew up in the upper middle class. So I think the media narrative, and to some extent, sociologists, and especially qualitative sociologists, narrative it's if you grow up in the upper middle class, you have these really hands-on parents, they have a lot of money, and you grow up with all the resources that you need to stay in your class. But I think focusing on the stay-at-home moms and the family men shows us that that's not always true. So the stay-at-home moms, they're often women, they, they're always women. They grow up in often more rural places, more southern places, and in conservative communities. They're also often very religious and part of conservative Christian denominations. And so for them, the idea of women being professionals isn't as high status. They see the high status thing as being becoming a stay at home mother. But that also is an appealing identity to them because they aren't given the resources to become a professional. So a lot of them grow up with fathers who are very high earning. And who are college educated professionals, but a lot of them have mothers who are not college educated professionals and who, in fact, didn't graduate from college and never worked in the professional labor market. So they're effectively being raised by the same type of people that sometimes working class kids are being raised by. So people who didn't go to college and have not entered a professional job. And their fathers are very rarely around. So it's a a gender division of labor in their household, Mm -hmm. where their mother is the primary parent and their father is the primary provider. So he's bringing in a lot of money, but he's working so much that he's not a particularly active participant in their lives growing up. And so they don't grow up with the academic skills and the institutional knowledge that other kids who are raised by college professionals do. And that's because their dads aren't around to give them that knowledge. And their moms aren't equipped. They didn't graduate from college themselves, and they didn't enter professional jobs. So they just don't know quite as much about the professional labor force. And so given that the girls don't have these resources, and there is this really attractive identity that's high status in their community, they kind of decide that what they want to do is become stay-at-home moms. And what that means is that they navigate school, and to the extent they go to college, college and work in ways that reflect that. So even when they're pretty young in middle school and in high school, they talk about you know, they go to school, but it's kind of just like the place that they have to go to until they can start their real lives, or they are really interested in dating, and that's the main reason that they're in school. So they're, they talk a lot about their romantic relationships and how important those are to them, and that's kind of their way of showing their identity, that relationships are really important, whereas school, the academic part... Less so. Um, and then if they go to college, kind of the same thing. It's about their relationships, much more so than the academics. And so they're not kind of, setting themselves up to be professionals in their own rights and to stay in the middle, upper middle class in their own right. They're looking to do that through marriage. But for those who don't go to college, they're not meeting professional men. They're not meeting college educated men. So the men they meet tend to be working class guys, and then they end up often being downwardly mobile because they marry working-class men and they themselves don't have college degrees or professional jobs.
0: Oh, that's very interesting. So is the family man side, the, the male side of that, s- similar? It is similar. So
1: it's um, men who are, tend to be raised in similar communities, so also rural, southern, uh, away from the coast and religious communities, particularly Christian conservative communities. And they're often raised in these communities where being a professional is somewhat looked down upon as a sign of misplaced values, that you should be devoted to your family, not so devoted to your career. You need to provide, you need to have a full-time job, but it's there to do what you really need to do, which is to be a good husband and father, not to kind of keep getting promoted and keep and invest more than you have to in your career. And so the men go through school and college in the same sort of ways. So they they get good enough grades to be able to go to college if they want to, but they're not invested in getting the best grades or figuring out exactly how colleges work and doing a lot of research to figure out what exactly is the best college for them. Uh, And then when the men who do go to college they often get really invested in their relationships. A lot of them have to spend time away from college because they end up so invested in their relationships that they let school go a little bit and, and they fail out of some, they fail some of their classes. And so they too can be downwardly mobile because they are enacting this identity that is one that really values marriage and parenthood and less so. Becoming a college educated professional. Now, those with enough who grew up with really hands on parents who had a lot of money, they often have enough resources that even if the men aren't trying their hardest, they can stay in the upper middle class because they grew up with enough academic skills and institutional knowledge to be able to coast a little bit and still be able to stay in the upper middle class. But for the boys whose parents were much more hands off, who didn't teach them how to succeed in school in the same way. This can be really hard for them than to try to stay in college and to try to find a professional job, and many of them don't. Um, They're happy. They end up getting married and having children
0: and becoming the family man
1: they always hope to be, but that's often being a family man outside of the upper middle class.
0: It's so interesting because it I mean, what it makes me think about in reading and, and talking to you right now is is the transmission of values and that combination um, where it isn't just an explicit, you know, message from a parent, but it's also a sort of more Bourdieusian uh, habitus kind of uh, transmission of values through your environment and kind of combined with the idiosyncrasies of different personality types and, um, to kind of how those values are transmitted. But I mean, we know values can be interpreted in different ways. And so there's just this, you know, various types of interpretations of, of what we value. Um, all the things are present. Work is present, finishing school and, um, family, but in different in different degrees or sort of in, in different placement. Um, it kind of sounds like, so that, I mean, I think that's fascinating to think about. Um, and uh, speaking of that, I, I, I really was intrigued by the way you talked to about kind of in another paired set that isn't quite as obvious, but the, um, the artist and the athlete. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about, about those identities.
1: Mm-hmm So the people who identify as artists and athletes, they tend to grow up in families that give them a lot of human and cultural capital, so a lot of academic skills and a lot of knowledge about how to navigate schools and colleges, but they grow up in families also that don't have as much money for being in the upper middle class as their peers, right? So their parents are maybe more like teachers, social workers, jobs that are professional jobs, but that don't necessarily pay a lot. And the artists and athlete identities become attractive because those identities really suggest that you should go after your passion. And almost it's better to go after your passion when it doesn't pay a lot. So you can say like, oh, I'm going to be an artist. Good artists don't do art for the money. They do art for the passion, for the love of it. And if you become rich through your artwork, that almost means you sold out. So it's almost bad to be a rich artist. It's more high status to be the starving artist. And so this identity really helps them kind of justify not having a lot of money. Um, And it goes well with that. Same with athletes, right? The great athlete is one who does it for the love of the game, not to make a lot of money. Uh, But by enacting that identity, it also makes it hard for them to really think about finances and to think about work. So a lot of them do very well in school and in college, but they didn't think a lot about how to finance college. They just kind of put that off because you're not supposed to think about money a lot as an artist or an athlete. So they end up with a lot of debt, and, which they kind of knew they were getting into, but thought like, oh, it'll work out. It'll be fine. I don't want to think about it. Um, and that becomes a big problem for them also because they hadn't thought much about the labor market. So they go through school and arts and sports are really important. They will go to college. There's these majors in, in the arts. There's a lot of opportunities to do sports. Some of them even find sports management majors or something like that, where they can really invest more in sports. And so it seems like college also is really rewarding them for this identity. And so they kind of just assume that the labor market will as well. And then they're really surprised to find out that there aren't a lot of jobs, a lot of high paying, stable, professional jobs for artists or for athletes. And by athletes, I mean, not just people who play sports, but people who want to work in the sports industry. And so they, and because they're so invested in this identity, which is one where you downplay money, they didn't do very much research into finding You know, I think it would be obvious to a lot of people who are not artists and athletes that there aren't a lot of jobs in the arts or in sports, and that those jobs tend to not be very stable. But for them, this is an enormous surprise. And and they're so committed to doing arts and doing sports that even when it doesn't work out soon after they graduate from college, a lot of them just think, oh, I'm unlucky right now. It'll work out soon. And so they keep trying and they keep trying. And they often have very high aspirations, like one wants to be a photographer for the New York Times, and they just kind of assume things have always worked out in the past for them. They got a lot of status from this their whole lives. It will keep working out, and it, it just doesn't, at least as young adults. And so they end up on this downward mobility trajectory, too, partly from growing up without a lot of money. And then trying to kind of spin that as a positive thing rather than to seek out ways to make more money. I
0: I find that part very interesting because I think there is a, a an undercurrent that's. I mean, I wonder if you think that that crosses over classes. Um, not that that's necessarily what you're basing that on evidence or research that you've done, but those identities seem to seem to be in, seem to span across class lines.
1: Yeah, my guess is a lot of them do. And I think a lot of people, regardless of the class you're in, try to make the most of the resources we have and almost define our identities around what we have and what we don't have. So we reject what we can't have. Um, So you can think of like the stay-at-home mothers as rejecting being a professional worker in some ways. But partly, they were never given the resources in their own family to set themselves up up for that pathway to be likely for them. And I think a lot of us, regardless of our class position, do this. We define what is possible for us as the best thing to do and what is maybe out of reach as something we didn't want anyways. Um, I think that's a human thing, not just an upper middle class thing.
0: I. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, it would be interesting to, to, um, to explore this across even more um, classes to see if your archetypes hold true uh, for different groups or how they would be differently interpreted. I think it would be super interesting. But I think, I think it's interesting, too. And we can circle back to um, talking about why, in particular, you chose to look at the upper middle class. But I also don't want to leave out the explorers, because in some ways that was the uh, a really interesting group to to me. Um, so the explorers are ones who um, have multiple identities. And uh, I wonder if you could say a little more about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they're the archetype of what we think about when we think of young adults. So I think the narrative about young adults tends to be they're exploring their identity. They don't know what they want. They're trying out a lot of things, and that was really this group. I mean, in one way, what was more surprising is that everybody else had kind of it figured out. They were a professional from when they were a little kid, or they knew they were on the stay-at-home mom or a family man path, or an artist or an athlete. And this group vacillated between a few different identities, and those range for different people with different identities. And One of the reasons that was is often they grew up in communities with conflicting values. So their family had one set of values and the broader community had a different set or they had different sets of values within their own family. Um, And that gave them options so that they could bounce back in between different identities at different time points depending on what was working. But it also made it hard for them to stick to a pathway that was gonna lead them to class reproduction. Um, So I can give you an example. Um, an example of somebody I worked out for, but I think it hits home of like, why are some people, why do some people have multiple identities and other people don't? Um, So Rhonda, she grew up in a family where her father was a professional and really invested in that. And so he would come home and they would read the New York Times together and talk about it. They would read literature together and talk about it. They talked about art. They talked about all of these kind of academic things and Rhonda got really invested in that. So by the time she was eight years old, she remembers that she really wanted to be a history professor at Yale. But she also grew up in a tight knit conservative Christian community and went to a private Christian school. So everybody she knew was a conservative Christian and she was taught that women should grow up to focus on being a mother. And so she would say in one breath, I'm gonna be a history professor at Yale. And then two minutes later in the interview, she would say something like, I don't know why women are so invested in their careers. I think women should be stay-at-home mothers. And so she kind of had both identities throughout her life that she thought were really attractive. And so she bounces back and forth between them. So she is really invested in academics, especially when she is single. And then eventually she finds a boyfriend and marries him and becomes a stay-at-home wife for a year so he can pursue his career abroad. So she moves with him abroad, and, and she doesn't work. And and she comes back, and she's just kind of astonished to learn that she is now ineligible for a lot of positions that she wanted to take because she's got this big gap on her resume. And so one, so she ends up not becoming a professional, even though for a long period of her life she thought that that was going to be a possibility and something she was really working towards. And the stay-at-home mother identity starts taking over more after she gets married. Um, She does marry somebody who also is a college-educated professional, so she stays in her class, but that's not the case for everybody. So for a lot of people having multiple identities, especially when one of them is not a professional, is kind of a path towards downward mobility, because it takes so much work to stay in the upper middle class, even for people who are born there, that if they're not committed for long periods of their life, it makes it much harder to stay there.
0: It seems like with the explorer identity, there are more opportunities to decide that you've been successful uh, because you have different measures that you could use kind of in your own mind to decide that you ended up on the right path all along, but also ways you can be really contradictory or even ambivalent in considering whether you've been successful or not, because you're clearly not going to probably meet them all. Um, so that's. Yeah, I think that's right.
1: I think the explorers feels the most conflicted. So they're often doing something that they are really excited about and really want to do. And that means they're not doing something at the same time that excites them and that they would really want to do. And so they always feel, I think, both like they are very much succeeding and they are very much failing at the same time. And a lot of them end up being downwardly mobile because they are less committed to staying on one path towards a professional career.
0: Now, I really liked it that at the end of the book, you also talked about misalignments, um, people who didn't necessarily fit into the archetypal um, categories that you had um, created. Um, So what did you learn from looking at misaligned cases? Mm -hmm.
1: So the point of the book is to figure out which upper middle class kids end up downwardly mobile and which don't and why. And so they helped us tease apart, is it resources that really matter, that some upper middle class kids grow up with fewer resources than others? Is it identities that really matter, that you really need a professional identity, otherwise you're likely to be really mobile, or is it both? And by focusing on people who are misaligned, we can really see that it's both. So if it was just resources, we would think it doesn't matter what your identity is. If you grew up with a lot of resources, you can just stay in upper middle class. If it was just identities, we would think everybody who identifies as a professional, regardless of your resources, is going to stay in upper middle class. And by looking at both, we can see that neither one of those stories are true, that the most likely way to stay in the upper middle class is having both a lot of resources that you've received from your parents and a professional identity. And similarly, just having a professional identity isn't enough to stay in the upper middle class you're much more likely to stay in the upper middle class if you have a professional identity and you grew up with a lot of resources. So being able to see the people who are misaligned, the people who maybe have a professional identity but not a lot of resources, or the people who didn't have a lot of resources but have a professional identity, we can kind of tease apart those relationships more and understand often that both are necessary. We can also look at those exceptions to see how they're related. So at times, and this wasn't very common, people's resources really changed or their identities changed. So, for example, some of the rebels entered a crisis, something really bad happened to them. They got very hurt or they you know, had a scrape with, you know, they could see their like where it was headed, sometimes through an example of somebody they knew. And they had this moment of, oh, my identity is not very good for me. I need to change. And so their resources didn't change, but their identities did. And we can follow their mobility pathways to see what happens then after their identities change, while their resources remain stable. And for those people, it usually did turn out that while they were headed towards a downward mobility trajectory at first, once they change from becoming from being a rebel to becoming a professional, they re-enter an upward mobility or a class reproduction trajectory towards the upper middle class again. So by looking at both, we can see that both of them really matter. And looking at the misalignments helps us do that.
0: That also seems like a life course issue too, because you can change your identity, but if you're doing things sort of out of phase of when other people are doing them, your success may be different than it would be if you did it at the same on-time age as everyone else.
1: I think that's probably true. So when I'm thinking about the rebels and one of them, Mitch, he is a rebel. He's in trouble with the law all the time. He's, he drops out of high school. He becomes a janitor. Uh, He's on drugs. His family kicks him out because he's too rebellious for them. He's doing a lot of drugs in the house and, and police are coming in the house. He's really living up to the rebel label. And then he, sees his uncle who he hadn't seen in a long time. And his uncle was homeless and his uncle used to be a rebel and he sees where this is going and he turns his life around. He decides to go back to community college and then he goes to college, he gets straight A's and kind of leads his class and then goes into a professional job. But he did that really early. So he did that around age 19. Some of the other rebels, when the data ends, when the the study ends, they're 28, and they're, they're still rebelling, but maybe a little bit less, and I'm curious what will happen if they try to turn their lives around, because at this point, they have longer records of criminal history, they haven't had a professional job for a long time, while a lot of their peers have, and so it's less clear to me that even if they have kind of a similar awakening as Mitch had that they will have the same outcomes that Mitch had. They might be a little bit too old for that to happen for them.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I think also there's, uh, you know, the one thing that we haven't talked about yet in relation to this is of course it's not just our individual identities and resources, but it's the times we're living in, right? It's, um, What's going on with society and the economy on the whole? Are jobs going up or down? as there more or less money for college? All of these various uh, factors. And I know in a prior interview, you had said that you were uh, fairly pessimistic about um, social class uh, mobility on the whole after your uh, 2015 book. Um, I wonder if, your feelings have changed over the last five years uh, at all, or um, if you have different feelings about social class inequality now than you did in 2015?
1: Yeah, yes and no. So, I mean, I think what doing this project showed me is that a lot of kids who are born into the upper middle class are downwardly So about one in two kids who have a college educated parent don't graduate from college themselves, About one in two men who have a professional father don't become a professional themselves. And so I think that is really different than the media narrative that is kind of, if you're born into the upper middle class, you're really likely to stay there. And a lot of that is also the narrative that sociologists tend to tell. And of course, there's a lot of truth to that. Like if you wanna enter the upper middle class as an adult, the easiest way is to be born into it as a child. So focusing on downward mobility kind of brings our attention to that that narrative is true, but it's also true that a lot of people who are born into the upper middle class fall out. I think the reason I'm still pessimistic is it is the kids who are born with the most resources, even within the upper middle class, who tend to stay there. So they're the kids whose parents have the most money and who the parents pass down the most academic skills and the most knowledge about how institutions work. So it, it does still seem like the class system is pretty rigid, but maybe our class groupings are just too wide at times to capture that. But there is a lot of variation within class, if not within the resources that kids grow up with.
0: Well, I think in some of what you said, it's implicit why it's important to look at, uh, in particular, the group of upper middle class. But is there anything you'd like to add about what you think looking at downward mobility in the upper middle class tells us about the temperature of society as a whole on social class?
1: And I think it suggests sometimes that we overstate the issue, and I think also that we understate it. So I think we talk about class reproduction a lot and the unfair advantages that upper middle class children have. And that's so true. A lot of these kids do have so many resources and that makes life a lot easier for them. But I think because a lot of our studies are focused on families that grew up on the coast where there is intense pressure to stay in the upper middle class, and that a lot of our studies about the upper middle class focus on the families that have the most resources within the upper middle class, that we overlook that not all families are passing down these resources to the extent that we imagine that they are, and that not all families prioritize that to the same extent. So in some families, especially those away from the coast, the most important thing that you could be is a good family member, or a good member of your religion. And so they're not striving for upper mobility, or for staying in the upper middle class in the same way. And I think that matters. And I I also think our perspective often is people who are in the because so many of the universities that really focus on research are on the coast, we assume that everybody wants to enter the upper middle class. And that just wasn't true. A lot of people would rather be an artist or be a family man or be a stay-at-home mom, even when that trade-off is that they can't stay in the upper middle class. And so some of the respondents kind of knowingly made that trade-off, and they were perfectly fine with it. And so I think sometimes we need to help people get what they want. And remember that people getting what they want doesn't necessarily mean people getting the highest class position that they can get.
0: That's so well said. I think it reflects the idea that, um, you know, downward mobility sounds like a very uniform, singular thing. But what you're saying is that it actually is multi-dimensional and reflects all all kinds of other things then may not all not all of them are negative
1: yeah you can be downwardly mobile in terms of your class position and still achieve all of your goals right or you can be downwardly mobile in terms of class position and still be really happy and so a lot of what the respondents wanted was to fulfill their own goals. And those goals weren't necessarily tied to their class position. In a way that might be a luxury of growing up in the upper middle class was even though they were going to be downwardly mobile, they were probably gonna have a pretty stable life in terms of their economic situation. Um, So they were downwardly mobile, but they weren't becoming poor. Uh, But I think it is still useful to remember that for a lot of people, downward mobility is not necessarily a bad thing.
0: Now, the people in your book, will it be possible for you to find out what happens to them next? Or is the study ended on that, is that complete?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So the study is based on um, data from the National Study of Youth and Religion. So I looked at the first four waves, which at the time were the only four waves. They are now collecting a fifth wave with a small number of respondents. And so I'm not involved with that data collection, but I will look if it becomes publicly available to see where the people who I followed end up. So it might be possible to learn about where some of them end up in terms of their class position and also if how their identities and the resources they grew up with relate to the class position they end up in. Well,
0: that seems like it will be fun. Um, Now I did sneak a peek at your website and it mentioned a, third book manuscript called the luckocracy, luckocracy, the word luck, luckocracy, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Make sure you said it right? Uh, how working class and middle class college graduates receive equal pay. Is this an upcoming project?
1: It's a book manuscript that's under review right now. So one of the surprising things about how class works is that once people who graduate from the same college go on to enter the workforce, they earn the same amount regardless of their class background. So a way to think about this is a low-income student who goes to Harvard and a high-income student who goes to Harvard are likely to have the same average earnings over their life course. And so the book is trying to figure out how does that happen? Given that upper income and people whose parents are college-educated professionals have more knowledge about how the professional labor market works, they have more connections, they have more money. How is it possible that they don't use that to end up with higher, um, with bigger paychecks? And so the book follows kids who are, during their senior year of college, through their first year in the labor market to learn how they get and keep jobs and how that equality happens, how it is that the working class kids end up with the same earnings as their higher class, uh, their counterparts who grew up in higher class positions.
0: Oh, that seems like a a great extension of your um, growing body of work on social class. So we look forward to seeing that and um, really appreciate your time today telling us about your book, Privileged Lost. That came out in April 2020 from Oxford University Press and is currently available.
1: Thank thank you you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me.